What does the Bible say about interracial couples and marriage? The answer follows today's Crosswalk. So stay with us for this week's Cross-Culture Q&A. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. I don't know when the events of this book are going to fully unfold, but this I know, that every day, every one of us are one day closer to the end, no matter when it is. God says that there is a time coming when He is going to draw to a close the age of man and that it will end with a time of upheaval and calamity such as the world has never seen before. Christians know that time as the Great Tribulation. But what about the church? Will we have to go through that time? Or does God have other plans? If we are wrong and in the, and in the providence and the sovereignty of God, the church has to actually go through the tribulation period, that great tribulation period, if it is part of God's plan in some way that we are going to be His witnesses even through this great time of turmoil and trouble in the world, if that's part of God's plan, then I want you to understand this. My faith in Him will not diminish one iota because it simply means that God has His purposes and His plans for us to go through that period of time. And either way, I've already read ahead to the back of the book and we win. Eternity in heaven awaits us. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today we come to Revelation chapter 4 in our year-long study of this prophetic book. We've seen in our study previously that Jesus had much to say to his church in chapters 2 and 3, but now the focus shifts as we prepare to enter a new stage of the book of Revelation. Listen to what he says now. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The Great Tribulation is a period of seven years that is going to be unlike anything man has ever seen. Scholars have debated for years whether Christ's bride, the church, will be on earth or whether the Lord is going to remove His church before those events begin to unfold. Thanks for joining us today as we continue Pastor Clay's study, The Revelation. There certainly is a lot going on in the world. Um, I was thinking everything this week. Uh, Earthquakes, all kinds of weather-related issues, financial crisis, political upheaval, all different kinds of things happening around the world, in the world at this time. So it's an appropriate time probably to look at the prophecy of this book, the book of Revelation. I would say, and I, and I, I don't consider myself old, you may, but I don't consider myself that old, but I think this is probably the most nervous, the most uncertain that I can remember the world being in my lifetime. Now, I was a toddler when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. That was, that was pretty serious as well, I'm sure. But, but I've never seen so much anxiety, it seems like, so much uncertainty, so many questions about what is going to happen in the future. What does the future hold? And it's not just this country, by the way. It's everywhere. I don't know when the events of this book are going to fully unfold, but this I know, 
that every day, every one of us are one day closer to the end, no matter when it is. Oh, there's a lot going on. And to top it all off, I didn't win the HGTV Dream Home Giveaway this week, and I just knew I was going to win it. I don't, I don't mean to make light of the subject matter, because it is pretty serious. It, it is a serious question, um, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't tell you for sure when it's going to happen, but this I know. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Uh, this is uh, kind of embarking. Today we, we're in Revelation chapter 4, and we're kind of embarking on a new segment of the book of Revelation. And so because we are, it's probably a good time to reflect on, on something. Let me say this before we do. For most of you here today, what, what I have to say and, and what we'll look at may be more instructional, more informational than it is inspirational. But that doesn't mean that it's not profitable. As a matter of fact, I, I was thinking about that uh, in, in my life. I would say that most likely the most, the most inspirational times in my life, the times when I've been the most encouraged about my walk with Jesus, the most uh, fired up about my walk with Jesus, the most uh, energized and, and energetic have come at the times when, when, when God has revealed something new to me in His Word or, or I've been reminded of something that maybe I haven't, haven't thought of in a long time. So while... What we'll do today is, is primarily didactic. It's more, it's more teaching. It's more informational. But as I said, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be profitable. My uh, prayer, not only today, but, but all week, I pray for you all and for myself. I, I pray all week that, that God will just open our hearts and our, and our minds to the truth of His Word. I, I pray that what we talk about today is profitable for you as we look at it. But as I said a moment ago, it's probably a good time to... Uh, uh, review just a little bit. I covered this with you in the very first week of uh, this study in the book of Revelation, but I thought it might be good to give it to you again um, just to remind you, and if you've come along since the very first week, then this uh, hopefully is helpful to you. The book of Revelation basically has four ways of being interpreted. There's four ways that people commonly interpret the book of Revelation. And if you take notes, there's an outline on the back of your information sheet, and you can write those uh, down or fill in those blanks if you'd like to. The first one of those four ways of interpretation is, uh, is what's known as the non-literal or the allegorical approach. The non-literal or the allegorical approach, which is simply this, and I gave you a little bit of a definition there. Um, the non-literal or the allegorical approach looks at the book, book of Revelation as not actual events, that it is symbolic of the struggles of the Christian life. So if someone takes a non-literal or what would call an allegorical approach to the book of Revelation, they're seeing it symbolically. They're saying, okay, this represents uh, the, the Christian life and it represents the struggles that we face and the triumphs that come to us and, and all that kind of stuff. That's the non-literal allegorical approach. The second approach is the preterist approach. The preterist approach, which is basically says this, that the book of Revelation is a record of the conflict between the early church and Judaism and paganism. Remember, in the early days of the church, there were, there were basically uh, two opponents. Judaism, uh, the, the Jews fought against Christianity uh, vehemently, many of them did, and 
paganism, just the world in, in general and the conflicts that Christians ran into as a result of taking their stand in the belief that there was one God and that he was Christ and he had died on the cross and risen from the grave. That, so the preterist approach just says, no, it just, it's a record of the, about the first two, three centuries maybe at the most of, uh, of the book of Revelation, and, and, uh, or the book of Revelation is the first two or three centuries at the most of the church, and, and that's it. So it's done, we can read it, and that's good, but it doesn't apply uh, anymore. The third approach is what is known as the historical approach. The historical approach uh, also sees it as kind of uh, symbo- symbolic, the way the allegorical approach does, but it looks at it as a presentation of total church history. In other words, the book of Revelation is kind of giving us an historical look at, at the, the struggles and the triumphs of the church down through the history, and, and it will go all the way to the end with the triumph of the church eventually at the end, and the setting up of God's kingdom as the, as the church brings it into fulfillment. Um, this is kind of the approach that the, the all-millennial view kind of comes from, and that doesn't, probably doesn't mean much to any of y'all, but anyway, that's kind of the idea that it is. It's... it's, uh, it's it's symbolic, it's historical, but it's symbolic of, of, uh, of our lives as Christians. And then the final approach is what's called uh, the futuristic approach, of which, uh, unashamedly, I uh, adhere to, the futuristic approach. The futuristic approach says from chapter 4 on, from chapter 4 on of the book of Revelation, these are literal events that are going to occur sometime in the future. When in the future? Nobody knows for sure, but they are literal events yet to occur in the future. That's a futurist approach. So that's the four basic approaches to interpretation of the book of Revelation. If you're thrilled to know that, say amen. Amen. All right. I think some of y'all actually even meant that. (laughs) Okay. Um, Remember... Uh, or if you've been with us, you may remember that in this study, that basically the book of Revelation is broken into uh, three parts. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, I think, uh, says it this way. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. I'll explain about that in just a moment. Those of us who hold to a futuristic approach or interpretation of the book of Revelation believe that chapter 4 is the, uh, the things which shall take place after these things. Chapter 4 is the beginning of that third part of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, the things that, that, that were. 2 and 3, the things that are. The, 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 the church, the life of the church and, and what was going to happen in the, in the church age. And in, beginning in chapter 4, the things which uh, shall be after this. We have spent, uh, I think, about 12 weeks looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches and the implications of that for our life because it wasn't just those seven churches, you know, talk about that it has application for the entire church age. And that's what we exist in right now. You and I are in the church age, the time from the from Jesus' first coming and ascension back to heaven, and until he comes the second time, we're in the church age. First three chapters referring to that, the the church age. Chapter 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, begins what's known as the Great Tribulation Period. And I'll explain that more when we get there, but the name in itself is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? It's the Great Tribulation, the great time of trouble that's going to come on the earth. 
That begins in chapter 6. In between chapters 4 and 5, where we begin today in the first part of chapter 4, chapters 4 and 5 are, are, it's almost like an interlude or a pause before John launches into this discussion of this great tribulation period in chapter 6. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 today. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I'm so thankful for your word, which is truth without any mixture of error. It is applicable for every aspect of our lives and for every person, I believe, Lord God. And so uh, today, as we look here at this, this opening part of Revelation chapter 4 and the opening part of these things which shall take place after these things. I pray for your wisdom, Father God. I pray for your discernment, for your insights uh, to be uh, properly delivered by me, your messenger boy, and that they would be properly heard and understood in the ears of this, your people gathered in this place today. There are men, there are women, there are boys and girls, there are people from every walk of life, in all of our stuff, and all of our hurts, our, our triumphs, and all of our hard times, and all of our good times, and wherever we are in everything, Lord God, this, your word, has application for our lives. So, as we discuss today these opening two verses of this fourth chapter, I'm just asking you to make every heart and mind alert, open, keenly aware of what your word is saying, and then, Lord God, that each of us would apply uh, what I call the so what principle. That as a result of whatever we discuss and look at here today in your word, that we would be asking ourselves all through and, and after we walk out these doors, so what? What does that mean for my life? How is my life going to be different as a result of anything that we read today or anything that Pastor Clay said? How will it impact and affect my life? Lord, that's always my desire, uh, that our lives would be changed that, that you would be glorified and that your kingdom would come. Amen. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Let me, let me give you a few definitions uh, straight from Revelation. Because it's a very short uh, passage of Scripture today, just two verses. Let me, let me set it out by giving you uh, some definitions for, that are found there in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2. And, uh, and then we'll go into a little deeper explanation. First thing that I want you to take notice of is the phrase, after these things. Now he starts it, very first statement he makes, after these things. And then it shows up again, I'll show you what must take place after these things. Things there is, there is clearly, by that statement, there is clearly a break from what we've been talking about and looking at for us for the last 12 weeks. But in those first three chapters, especially chapters 2 and 3, as Jesus has been writing to the seven churches, and again, it has application throughout the church age. He's been giving stuff, and, and then John suddenly comes to chapter 4, he says, now, after these things, 
I think the clear implication of, of John's statement is at the end of the church age is what he's referring to. After these things, after these things that I've spent so much time going over, you, over with you, yes, it's a, it's a break and it's a new segment for John, so it's after he's written these things, now he's going to write some new things, but there clearly seems to be a, a new direction that he is taking with the text. After these things is a reference to the end of the church age. Remember I told you that the church age, I just said this just a moment ago, uh, the end of the church age is, is, or the church age itself is the time between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is a time span that now has covered roughly 2,000 years, somewhere right, you know, in that area, that we have been in the church age, that the, it's, the, it's the era or the age that the church is in existence and that the church is being used by God to be salt and light in the world around us and that the church, and remember, what do we mean by church? We don't mean buildings, we don't mean stained glass windows or steeples or auditoriums or anything else. We mean us, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we're the church. We're in the age of the church and the time when people are coming in to a relationship with Christ and becoming a part of the, of the church, the, the body, the gathered ones. Remember? That's what that phrase means. So, after these things is a reference to the end of the church age. Second statement I want you to take notice of is first voice. Where he says, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard. First voice is a reference to chapter 1 and verse 10. It's not a reference. He's not saying, now after these things the first, verse, first person I heard. It was the first person he heard. But he's actually making a reference back to chapter 1 and verse 10. Which says this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. Here it is. Like the sound of a trumpet. So he describes that same voice. So he said, he said that, that person that was speaking to me back then is the person that's speaking to me now. Who's he referring to? Jesus. That's right. He's, re- he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that first spoke to me. His voice was like the sound of a trumpet. And then he comes back to it in chapter 4 and, and says it again. The first voice which I heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. So he says it's a, it's a new break. We're going in a new direction. But the same man... The same God man is still speaking to me. That voice that I heard at first, he's still there. And then there's this phrase, come up here. Come up here is a reference, I believe, to what's sometimes referred to by uh, those who hold to that view as the rapture or the snatching out. That's, uh, in essence, that's what the word rapture means. It means to, to snatch out, to pull out. And, and John, sta- or John hears this voice, this voice of Jesus that says, come up here. Spiritually speaking, John is commanded to come up there. Now, physically, I believe John's still on the island of Patmos. He's still there, but, but in the spirit, okay, whatever that all means, in the spirit, he is summoned to a new place where before he's been there and Jesus has given him these letters to the church, to the churches. Now he's suddenly commanded, come up here. And he finds himself in heaven. What John is commanded to do spiritually, I believe, is a reference to what the church will experience literally, which is the rapture or the snatching out. Rapture is a term that, that basically refers to the belief that there is coming a time when the church... And who's the church? That's right, those who have, who have given their life to Jesus Christ are following Him. When the church will be 
taken or snatched out. We'll look at a verse that deals with that in just a minute. But before we do, the, the, the church is taken up out. The, those living and those already dead in the ground who have, as you'll see, as the Bible puts it, fallen asleep, that they will all be translated, transformed, and caught up into the air. I, I believe there's a reference to that in 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's part of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this. But let me, and, and I'm reading it to you from the New Living Translation because I just kind of like the way it brought it out. But he says, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. The King James and New American Standard says a mystery. In other words, this is something that was, that was maybe kind of hidden in ages past that maybe they didn't quite understand. He said, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on this right now. Let, let, me, let, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We'll not all die, but we will all be transformed. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh, it will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. So there's going to be this changing that's taking place for those, both those who have, who have already passed away and those who are still living when this moment takes place. The question is... When, that's the $64,000 question, when does that event occur? Don't you want to know? So do I. (laughs) When is that event going to occur? Well, um, I'm going to give to you three three scenarios or, or three beliefs about when the rapture, the snatching out, the pulling up of the believers, when does that event take place? There are there are generally held three different views. The first view is what's referred to as the pre-tribulation, the pre-tribulation rapture view. That view simply is that the end of the church age, and, and when is the church age? Right now. Good, y'all are with me. At the end of the church age, but before the great tribulation. Now, I know I haven't said much about the great tribulation, and we, and we will get there in a few weeks, but let me, I will just say this. The great tribulation according to the book of Revelation, appears to be a, a specific period of time that lasts seven years. We'll talk about what all is going to go on during that time when we get there. But the pre-tribulation rapture view says at the end of the church age, but before the great tribulation, those who are followers of Jesus will be snatched up, caught up, raptured out. That's the pre-tribulation view. Second view is what's called the mid-tribulation rapture view. The mid-tribulation rapture view holds that basically halfway through the great tribulation period, the church gets to go up to be in heaven. And there is an event that occurs three and a half years into the tribulation period where the Antichrist breaks a covenant with the nation of Israel. We'll get there, all right? We'll get there. But um, those who hold to a mid-trib or a mid-tribulational view say that, no, the church is going to go through the first half of the tribulation period, but then the second half, before the wrath of God is really poured out, then they're going to be snatched up, raptured, taken out at that time. Mid-trib view. The third view that is, that is uh, kicked around is the post-tribulation view. You probably figure that out even without an explanation. Post-tribulation takes place at the end of the great tribulation period, but before the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. It's another event that we'll come to in the, in the book. The post-trib 
view is, is that, nope, the church will go all the way through. The believers will have to go through the tribulation period, and it's going to be rough, and it's going to be hard, but we got to go through it, and uh, at the end, uh, we get to go up and meet Jesus, and then, but then basically come right back down and start ruling and reigning with Him. So that's the post-tribulation view. Those are the three most commonly held views concerning the rapture or the snatching up or the taking out of the church. Okay? All right. Uh, moi is a pre-tribber. I hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture of the church. It is my uh, conviction, and I know part of it is from my upbringing and the, and the pastors I grew up under, but I, 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 and I've thought about this for some time as I was preparing for the study of Revelation. Uh, part of it I know may be from that, but then part of it also is the fact that as I look at Scripture, the pre-tribulational view, I believe, is the most consistent with Scripture and the most consistent with the very nature of God. So I'm, I'm a pre-tribber. I'm of the belief that the church, who's that? Will be taken up out of uh, this place at the end of the church age, whenever Jesus decides that is, whenever he comes back, and the tribulation period begins. Now, uh, let me give you, just basically build you some arguments. These are some arguments for the pre-tribulational view. You could say, well, do mid-tribbers have arguments? Yes, they do. Do post-tribbers have arguments? Yes, they do. But they're not up here. I am. This is, this is my view. So I'm, I'm given mine. You can, you can read about it. And I really, I, listen, I encourage you to do so. But let me give you some arguments for the pre-tribulational view. The first argument that I want to give you, and by the way, this is not exhaustive. This is not necessarily all of them. But these are four that I think are pretty significant. The first one is the difference in, in the descriptions in the Bible, the difference in the descriptions of the second coming of Christ. There are some differences when you read some of the different descriptions. The first uh, passage of Scripture I want to look at is in Matthew chapter 24, and it is from a section of Scripture that's known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus, uh, his disciples come to him, and they say, Lord, when are all these things going to come to pass, and when are you going to restore the glory of Israel? When's that going to take place? Jesus begins to, to discourse. He begins to teach them on these things. And in the midst of that, we come to Revelation chapter 24, verse 27 through 31, where he says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately, listen to what he says now. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. That's Jesus' description of the second coming in the Olivet Discourse. Now, we won't have them up, I don't guess, side by side. But now, compare that with Paul's description in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in reference to the second coming of Christ. Now, let me tell you this before I read it. The church in Thessalonica, Paul had hung out there for a while. Um, he had apparently taught them, as he did every church where he went, that there's coming a day when Christ is going to be coming back again. And you remember, even the angels told the disciples that. Remember when Jesus immediately went back to heaven and they're standing there staring up in the sky? You remember what they said? You men of Galilee, why do you stand here staring into the sky? This same Jesus whom you've seen go shall come again in like manner. He's coming back. They told him even then. 
Paul was teaching every church where he went that. Paul had been run out of Thessalonica. He'd been run out of many places where he had gone. And uh, during the time period, the interlude between he had been there and some time had passed, some of the Thessalonican believers had begun to die. So the other people in the church there said, hey, hey, Paul kept telling us Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. What about the people that have died? Are, are they going to miss it? They miss it now that they've died? That's what Paul's referring to when he says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. And he's not saying we don't want you to be stupid. He's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who fall asleep. That's how Paul referred to those who have died. Or to grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him according to the Lord's own word. We tell you that we who are still alive, notice what Paul says, we who are still alive, it indicates what Paul's belief was, that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. By the way, that's where that term, that rapture term comes from, that, that reference. To be snatched up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's a good word right there, isn't it? But, but do you see there's some pretty striking differences between Jesus' description in Matthew 24 and Paul's description in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's some pretty good, pretty striking differences between this description of his second coming. Now, that means one of two things. That either means that either Jesus or Paul is wrong, that one of them's wrong, or it means that there are actually two phases or stages of the second coming of Christ. That Jesus and Paul are actually referring to two different events separated by a time span of seven years. That Paul is describing the rapture of the church at the end of the church age, and Jesus is describing the end of the tribulation where Christ comes back, sets, uh, sets down on earth, and establishes his kingdom. So the, the very fact that the des- de- descriptions of the coming of Jesus sound so strikingly different is evidence, that, in my opinion, for the pre-tribulation rapture. Let me give you a second um, uh, piece of evidence. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 which we already covered, right? But we've already gone through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you were here that week, you may remember that we talked about that. Revelation 3.10 says this, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing. The great time of testing. He's referring, and we talked about that. You can go back and listen to that online if you want to uh, and hear how, how we went through the description of that. But it clearly is, is referring to more than just the normal tribulation or, or hardships or difficulties that, that all of life brings. I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. So Revelation chapter 3 verse 10, in my opinion, seems to indicate that Jesus is saying to the church, remember he wrote that to the, to the faithful church, that that you're, going, I'm, you're not going to go through this. I'm going to protect you from this. And of course, the church in that age was protected. They passed away before it, before it occurred. But it also would apply to whichever church is still living, whichever 
part of the church is still living when Christ does actually come back. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, um, doesn't absolutely prove a pre-tribulational view, but somebody certainly has to be able to explain that statement. And then the third argument, which for me is probably the most convincing, is this. It is the absence of the church in the rest of the Revelation. The absence of the church in the rest of the Revelation. If I count it right, 19 times the word church or churches shows up in the book of Revelation. 19 times. 18 of those times occurs in chapters 1 through 3. Really, chapters 2 and 3. The word church only occurs one other time. And the entire rest of the book of Revelation occurs one time at the very end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. My question is this. What happened to the church? Why would there suddenly go silent after speaking so prominently for the first three chapters about the church? Why now is there nothing about the church? Wouldn't there be some sort of instruction for the church as to, as to how to get along in the tribulation period? Wouldn't there be some sort of, sort of instruction on, on how to act and, and how, to, how to, you know, do whatever it is God wanted us to do if he wants us to stay? Wouldn't there be something? But nothing. It's almost as if the church disappeared. No reference to the church whatsoever until the very end in chapter 22 and verse 16. To me, that is striking. By its, by its absence, it is, it is striking to me that the church really, at least from the book of Acts on in the New Testament, is front and center. Everything is about the church and the life of the church and the body of believers and how we conduct ourselves in this world and, and how we reach the world around us and how we interact with each other. And then, whoo, nothing. As I said, it's almost as if the church has disappeared, which is, in fact, exactly what I believe has happened. Fourth piece of evidence, which is really connected to the third, is this. Uh, the change of the phrase in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9. Um, if you've been with us throughout this study, you will remember that throughout Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, he's ended every one of them with this same phrase. Do you remember this? If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says, what? To the churches. Do you remember that? Over and over again in chapter 2 and verse 7 and verse 11, verse 17, verse 29 and chapter 3 in verse 6 and verse 13 and 22. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, look at chapter 13 and verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. What happened to the church? What happened to the church? I'll say again, it's almost as if the church has disappeared. It is my view, and, 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 and I do believe that, that, that what it's saying is, is that, that as John is commanded to come up here spiritually in chapter 4 and verse 1, that that is, that that is a, a picture of the church being called up literally at the end of the church age. We've already established, he said, at the end of these things, at the end of this time now. Let me show you what's going to take place. And suddenly the church is no longer in the picture. So for those reasons and, and a few others, I hold, your pastor personally holds, to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. I do believe the church will be pulled out before the time of the great tribulation. doesn't mean that there won't be people who are believers in the great tribulation period. And I'll explain that when we get there. But the church, those who have committed their life to Jesus Christ, both past and present at His coming, will be snatched up, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, 
Let me say this as uh, we kind of draw towards a, a conclusion. There are good and godly men and women that believe that the church will go through the tribulation period. There are biblical scholars that hold to a mid-tribulation view. There are scholars that hold to a post-tribulation view. Well, what are you saying, Pastor? Are you saying that you don't, you don't think you're right? Oh, no. As I said at the beginning, I believe that the pre-tribulational view is the most consistent with Scripture and the most consistent with the very nature of God. But if I'm wrong, and those scholars that hold to the pre-tribulation view, if we are wrong, and in, the, and in the providence and the sovereignty of God, the church has to actually go through the tribulation period, that great tribulation period, if it is part of God's plan in some way that we are going to be His witnesses even through this great time of turmoil and trouble in the world, if that's part of God's plan, then I want you to understand this. My faith in Him will not diminish one iota, not one bit. Because it simply means that God has His purposes and His plans for us to go through that period of time. And either way, I've already read ahead to the back of the book and we win. Either way, uh, eternity in heaven awaits us. So even if I'm wrong, it it won't change my faith in Him at all. But here's the point. If I'm right, then it means at any second, Christ could call His church, which is also often referred to as His bride. At any second, He could call, and we're out of here. And the question is this. Are you ready? Are your friends, are your family members, are your co-workers, are they ready? I ask you this morning, do you understand the difference between knowing and believing? Knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus did, and actually believing it. Believing it to the extent that it, that it impacts and changes your life. Do those around you know it? If I'm right, and this could have happened at any time, and I'm not a, I'm not a necessarily a predictor of dates, I, I can't necessarily tell you when it will be, but I can tell you this, I believe it's a whole lot closer than most people are aware. And if it occurred, even today, are you ready? My intent is not to make anyone doubt their salvation, unless you're doubting your salvation. Unless you're uncertain about whether you're really in a relationship with Jesus Christ and those around you, and how God might use you to impact their lives. Come on up here. Those must have been sweet words to the Apostle John's ears. Today, we've discovered there's good reason to believe that the church will hear those same words before the beginning of the Great Tribulation. How exciting it is to think that at any second we could hear that call and be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Perhaps no one knows for absolute certain how those events will unfold, but we do know this. Our God reigns. His plans are perfect, and He will accomplish His perfect plans in His perfect timing. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. 
At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross-Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross-Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross-Culture Q&A. Q&A time at Cross-Culture Church. Each week I take, thank you very much. Uh, I feel like Jay Leno when I get that applause. Um, I, I, I get, uh, we get questions that someone submits, uh, a question about what the Bible says in regards to some particular subject matter. So these cards are out there on the table if you'd like to fill one out. Today's uh, question is this. What does the Bible say about interracial couples or interracial dating or interracial marriage? I got a whoo already. So um, uh, what does the Bible have to uh, say about, about that? Well, quite simply, nothing. <laughs> um, n- the Bible has nothing to say about interracial marriages or interracial couples um, because as far as the Bible is concerned, and hear me clearly on this, there is only one race, and it's called the human race. That's it, period. There's only one race. The Bible puts it this way in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, I think it is. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Y'all may not be too happy about that, but all y'all are related to me in some way or another, somewhere down the road, you know. So get over it. It's just this way it is. Acts chapter 17 says this. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God created all of us and it's just from, all from one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. Uh, technically speaking, and I was doing a little research on this uh, this week, technically speaking, uh, there's actually only only really one skin color. The skin itself is actually only, only one, one color. Uh, it, it has different shades depending on how much uh, melanin, I think it's called melanin, that your body produces. And uh, that's kind of a genetic uh, determined thing. But, uh, but the melanin, as I understand it, and I'm not exactly sure about all this stuff, if, 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 if you have questions, see Dr. Clary. He can, he can uh, explain all this. But the, the melanin... Uh, depending on how much your, your body produces, uh, kind of covers the skin cells and protects it from, uh, from the sun. So the question sometimes is raised, well, then how did we get people with different skin color? Uh, again, I've only got five minutes, and I'll probably only take eight. So let me just, let me just give you a, a brief version. Basically what happened, uh, most people believe, understand, that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, would have probably been sort of an olive-colored complexion. 
somewhere between uh, black and white and, you know, a, a nice olive tone. Um, the, the, the people, as they grew up and they intermarried and they, they had children, that there would have been this diversity of the, of the genetic pool, if you will, the gene pool. Um, after the, uh, the flood, uh, Noah and his wife came out and hit Noah's three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, came out and their wives. And uh, we know scripturally that, that everybody hung out together for a while, but if you read in the book of Genesis, you find out that something occurred called the Tower of Babel, where, where man's pride raised up and he thought that he could, could you know, build this tower to God and, and it had to do with pride and, and God confused the languages and sent them out all over the earth. Y'all remember that story from Sunday school or something? Um, and they dispersed all over the earth. From that point on, uh, pockets of people uh, began to, were, were together. They weren't intermixed anymore and so, and so dominant genes within the gene pool within a particular group of people began to take Preston, began to come to the surface. And so uh, people that had whose uh, whose bodies produced more melanin would would uh, intermarry and produce more, and, and skin would become darker and darker. There would also be some geographical connection to it as well. Um, areas of the of the earth where the sun was brighter, hotter, closer to the equator. Um, people that had had less melanin would tend to develop skin cancer and would age quicker. And uh, and so those that uh, that had more melanin. Would, uh, would be stronger, live longer, and, and, uh, and produce uh, on like that. So that's kind of how different skin colors came to exist. But the fact is, there's, there's just one race, and it's called the human race. Well, and one argument is, well, what about the nation of Israel? How come the nation of Israel was told not to intermarry with other races? No, there are no other races. The Israelites were prohibited from intermarrying other tribes... And it had to do with the religious reasons, not racial reasons. It had nothing to do with their skin color or their, or their facial features or body features or anything else. It had to do because, and I don't have time to go through all the passages of Scripture that, that make that clear, but it had to do with the fact that God knew that these chosen people, they'd set out to deliver His message and, and to, to, uh, to, to tell the people about the one true God that if they began to intermarry with the other nations around them, they would begin to adopt their religious practices, which was multitude of gods and all different kinds of, of actions that went along with that. And so God said, you are to remain separate from them. It had nothing to do with the color of a person's skin. The only prohibition that Scripture gives about marriage, dating, uh, is this that a believer should not date or marry or whatever you want to put it, um, a non-believer. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In the context, Paul's talking about a broader base than, than just marriage, but the implication is it doesn't mean that we don't interact with those who are not followers of Christ. We do. We're called to be salt and light into this world, but to, to enter into something as, as binding as a covenant marital relationship with an unbeliever, you will be unequally yoked in the references to, to oxes or something like that pulling in different directions. And so uh, that's what it says. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, watch this, only in the Lord. So what Paul is saying is if, if, a, if a wife's husband passes away, uh, she can remarry. And he's referring to a believer, of course, but it must be 
with a believer. So that's what, if you're in a dating situation, that's what you need to keep in mind. Uh, you know, that's, that's what you need to keep in mind. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I can win them to Jesus. I'm just telling you what Scripture says and need to keep that in mind. Um, but there's one race, the human race. We're all related in some way or another. And uh, that's Q&A for today.